Welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. Morning, friends. We come together for the Word, and we come to read and be impacted by and consider and contemplate and embody all that we get through the Holy Spirit, reading of the Word, and this is an interesting time because the turkey has been eaten. We've been preparing for Thanksgiving. It has come and gone, or maybe you still have some gatherings yet today, but Advent is here nonetheless. We start this liturgical season that marks the beginning of a new year. If you're not familiar with the liturgical season, it goes through the whole year, except Advent is the beginning. So last Sunday was the reign of Christ Sunday. It was the last Sunday of the liturgical year. And so the reign of Christ, we lift up that all things are under the reign of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day when all of heaven and earth will be renewed with Christ as King. And so that's where the story will end. And so we now begin the story today. And so we're in year C. There's three years, A, B, and C. And so every Sunday, if you're not familiar with the lectionary, following the liturgical calendar, we have a lectionary that gives us four biblical passages every week. And we get the Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. We get one psalm. We get a gospel reading and we get another reading from our Christian scriptures, what sometimes called the New Testament. And the years, A, B, and C, are distinguished by the gospel readings. And so year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, and we just completed year B. And so today begins year C, where we focus on the gospel of Luke. Now, there's no year for John. John's a strange gospel, and John is really focused on, on different points of the, the liturgical year. And so we will hear a lot from John in every year, but this is the year of Luke, And so if you've ever been to a church or talked to friends who go to another church and on a Sunday you realize that the sermon was on the same passage, it's probably, well definitely, because that church must be following the lectionary. And that's the idea is the whole church is going through the same passages together. And over the course of three years, we have pretty much encountered passages from the entire canon of Scripture. So that gives you a little explanation, and we've changed our colors in the room. We have our blue up for Advent, and we've got our decoration to mark this change in the season. Now remember, Advent is not Christmas. Christmas is coming, not until December 24th when we have our Christmas Eve service, and then Christmas Day on the 25th, then we enter the liturgical season of Christmas. But now it's Advent, and Advent means arrival or coming. And so we begin the story of Jesus in our liturgical year, not with the birth, but all the things that came before the birth, the anticipation of his arrival is our Christian story. And we tell the story through Hebrew scriptures written hundreds of years before his birth, as well as some some images from the gospel that were from his ministry well beyond his birth. And we tell all of this to bring it all together as we tell the story and anticipating the arrival of his birth long ago, but just as importantly, the arrival of him to come. 
to come in that great day, that second coming, when all things are renewed, but also the birth of Christ within us as we experience new birth all the time. That's part of our walk as United Methodists. And so this time of Advent is to tell the story of old while looking to the story of the future, while anticipating the story of right now. God is not done with the body of Christ in the church. Our story, you and I, is right here and now as we move forward through these days. Your part in the story is about what is coming to life in your heart. Your part in the story is about where we are headed together as the church for our world. So Advent, are you ready? Are you ready for Advent? I ask this because our passage today is not going to include wise kings, shepherds, a teenage girl, or a baby boy. We're going to start today looking at the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. But before we read the passage that will surely raise an eyebrow, it's going to be a strange passage for what you might expect in this season, but first let's prepare our hearts. I'm going to explain apocalypse fig trees and the gospel of Luke. That should have been the sermon title right there. (laughs) And then we're going to read the passage and then we're going to explain the message and why this passage is on the first day of Advent. So let's begin here. Apocalyptic literature, apocalypse. You've heard that word, but probably to do more with Hollywood depictions than biblical understanding. Apocalyptic literature is a genre of literature. Much like we have romance novels or mystery or we have biography or history, if you were to a few remaining bookstores today, you would see these different categories of books. If you were to go to a bookstore in first century, you would see a section for apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic literature, and it speaks of a cosmic reality. There's a world that we see, you and me, and then there's a world we don't see. And that's what apocalyptic literature writes about, talks about, communicates. And so we, to try to break this down, understand that we see our families, our friends, we see our church, our community, our government, we see our country, and we see our world. We all see them, but we all see them through our own perspective, through our particular point of view. Now, there are many points of views. In fact, at least as many different points of view as there are people, but even more because some of you do the wonderfully hard and rewarding work of looking at things through multiple points of view. But even all these things together, they're all, every one of them are limited. Our view, our personal view is limited. We process everything through the same channels, the five senses. So it's all about what we see, hear, smell, taste, feel. But even our senses are limited because I can't see everything there is to see. There, there's light and there are things that I can't, I could never see with my eye. I need special tools to see those things or to hear. I know that animals hear things that I don't hear. So we're limited. Now, I can, we're limited as humanity as well. That's probably our biggest limitation where you're humans. I can only see and experience what's in my time and my space. I can read about other times and spaces, but I'm only able to see them through someone else's point of view. And this reminds me of the time my good close friend Ian, England, and I, and as we were teenagers, we talked about the Revolutionary War. And so he spoke of it from the British side, and I spoke from the American. And can you believe 
We had different points of view. We understand what happened there very differently. And so it makes us wonder what really happened. So I can only see in my own time and space. Uh, Another limitation is what I have even with you. You are in my time and space, but I don't know what you're thinking right now. I don't know what's going to happen with us tomorrow. In fact, I don't even know what all happened yesterday, right? There's a lot of things that happened yesterday that are not in my awareness. I don't know what God sees when God looks upon me or us or the church or the world. I don't know what God knows. I'm limited. I can't even comprehend God. Like we, we grasp, I know that God has always been, but I realize my limitations immediately by making that statement because I can't process what forever is. I can try, but not really. So apocalyptic literature, all that to say, apocalyptic literature pulls back the curtain of our, what we experience, our limited point of view, to reveal what we cannot see and know. So the word apocalypse, it's a Greek word, apocalypsis, it means to reveal, or another way to say it is revelation, which is where that book gets its name. So let's think about what we see today. What do we see in our limited points of view? I see division, and I hear it in a lot of places, even the church. I, I see political nonsense on every side of the aisle in our capital. I see church struggles, like our denomination's struggle, based on conversations around human beings needing to have control and enforce their point of view on others. Yeah, we all feel that. I see fear today. I see fatigue with COVID as we are bombarded with info about yet another variant. And I see things about catastrophic devastation in Southeast Asia due to climate change, among other places. It's heavy what we can see if we turn on the news. But what else do we see? I also see a world, a country particularly, opening its eyes to injustice everywhere. I see a world where many things have never been as good as they are right now. We have a long way to go to truly be good, but they are better than they've ever been. It's true. A higher rate of education and lifespan is experienced by all cultures across the globe and all genders. There's a rising rate of equity and equality for all people. It's happening all the time. That's what all this fighting is about. It's a good thing. It hurts. I wish it didn't involve the pain and the fight, but it, but it does, and we're doing it. And looking at all these things and our limited points of view and these things that overwhelm us at times, I wonder, what does God see? What does God see when God looks at us or the church or our world. And if you assume that God sees what you see, I invite you to reconsider your limited point of view. There's more going on in our world than you could ever know in a moment, and yet God sees it all. Apocalyptic literature tells the bigger cosmic story, including the elements of good and evil, of light and darkness, of peril and rescue. And it uses imagery that we can grasp with our five senses to help us grasp what the, the bit that we can. So apocalyptic literature tells things well beyond our senses, which is why you always see things like. There will be like a bow of emerald in the sky. There will be a sea that is like glass or a shift in reality like the changing 
season for a tree in our reading today. It's the best it can do to try to help us begin to understand things beyond our limitations. It's bringing extra sensory awareness to our limited senses. But if you remember nothing else about apocalyptic literature, I want you to remember this. The entire point of apocalyptic literature is always hope. Hope. It is always hope. There is not a more hopeful literature available than apocalyptic literature. That's my personal argument. And the reason you might not be ready to agree with me on that, if you've read Revelation or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel, is because we only see it from our particular point of view and we don't understand it, frankly. If you just open Scripture and start reading it, you're not going to see hope. This kind of literature hasn't been written in hundreds or thousands of years. In fact, the only thing available to us, I'm aware of, is from the Bible. And these writings we have are between 1,900 and 3,000 years old. We have to be taught how to read it. It's coded with symbols everywhere because each of these writings was intended for a specific audience who would know the symbols. I could say the word 9-11 and you know immediately what I'm talking about. But someone born 300 years from now, 3,000 years from now, on the other side of the planet, if I had written 9-11, they'd have no clue what I'm talking about. Which means they'd have to go and research and learn to understand what that's referencing. So among the message of hope and all these symbols, there is also a call to action, a what to do now that we have this hope. And it's good to know what to do because often this is written in a time when people are wondering, what do we do? It was often passed around to people who were in the depths of injustice, on the wrong side of power. And that means you can't tell the story clearly in a way that everyone could understand it. Because if you are passing around this kind of literature, which often depicts the downfall of unjust power, then people who are in charge and in power aren't going to want that passed around, which is why you could be killed for having this type of literature. So you write it in coded language that not everyone can understand so that it can fly right under the nose of power and those trying to conserve unjust systems. So how do you tell the story of the destruction of mighty and corrupt systems and people in the midst of those corrupted systems and peoples? Well, you use codes, ways people can't understand And so, given that, here we are thousands of years later, well beyond those times and audiences, and you understand that we can't possibly understand these readings on the surface. And so this misunderstanding about what apocalyptic literature is, when it's often presented as something other than hopeful, it usually produces fear-based interpretations, which totally miss the point. People take the symbols literally instead of literarily, And they start looking for the exact described signs. You've probably heard of this. And you see the panic and the anger and the fear that it leads to. It leads to things that are anything but hope. So, apocalyptic literature, coded, cosmic, a call to action, and all about hope. All right, apocalypse. Second thing I want to explain is the fig tree. It's going to be a faster explanation. It's a common tree in Israel. We have numerous stories in our Bible that involved fig trees. Also, numerous times we have Israel described as a fig tree. 
Um, you can go to Hosea, Jeremiah, uh, Micah, and others. And they will include stories with a fig tree as a symbol for Israel. Again, it's symbolic language. If you read it literally, then you're going to be very confused at why Israel is suddenly a tree. Don't read the stories about Israel being a tree literally, but literarily. In multiple Gospels, Jesus speaks of fig trees, and almost always in Jerusalem. In one parable, the fig tree isn't producing fruit. So there's discussion about cutting it down before the farmer asks for one more season to really take care of it, to fertilize it, to prune it, to really go all out and give it a chance before we decide it's not worth keeping and we cut it down. Another story, Jesus cursed a fig tree. It's in multiple gospels. It's not bearing fruit, and so he curses it, and it dies, which has always been kind of a strange story of Jesus. Amen? So we're going to read of a fig tree today. It will be referenced in comparison to all other trees, one nation among all other nations. So, the fig tree. Something to know about the Gospel of Luke. It was written several decades after Jesus had died, risen, and ascended. Between Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the pinning of this gospel, something significant happened. Something that the writer of the gospel was aware of that the people in the story he wrote were not. Something more significant than I could really fully describe. So what this was, um, well, understand this. Jesus was in ministry on earth, in person and flesh, from around 0 to 30 A.D., Luke was written around 80 to 90 A.D., so 50, 60 years later. In the meantime, that in-between time, in 67 A.D., a great war broke out in Jerusalem against Rome. Rome occupied Israel. Rome did what Rome always did in the face of people rising up. They leave. They just leave. They left Jerusalem. And what they do is they build up their army. They amass everything they need to come back and utterly lay waste. Rome was very smart and very patient. And so while Rome was away for those few years, a great number of small Israel factions, Jewish factions, political groups, came in and seized control of Jerusalem. And various people that led those factions would ride in on their horse, waving palm branches, proclaiming to be their deliverer, the Messiah. And there would be multiple ones coming in saying, no, they're not the real Messiah, I'm the real Messiah. Each group thought they were God's ordained. And when Rome did return there were at least four different groups that had some bit of control over the Temple Mount. Jerusalem's big. The temple's a small part of it. But even in that small part, on the inside of the temple was one group. Just on the outside by the doors was another. Just on the outside beyond those walls of the mount was another. And just on the outside of those walls was yet another. All of them thought they should be in control. And so when Rome came back to a divided group, it was in slaughter. Rome destroyed all the people. Rome destroyed the temple. In fact, you can still see the rubble today because the temple was never rebuilt. There are people standing at the wailing wall right now, wailing because the temple has never been rebuilt. So let's try to fathom what this means. We maybe know some of this story. Prior to Rome coming and destroying the temple, for hundreds of years, Jewish people had found their connection to God through a tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus, and then eventually the building of the temple by Solomon. And so for hundreds of years, sacrifices for atonement of the entire nation of Israel, forgiveness of sin, were all done in the temple. 
That's where God dwelt. That's where heaven and earth overlapped. The entire system in place to offer peace and right relationship between Israel and God was in the temple. Except now, because of Rome, it's gone, never to return. And so there were questions being asked. What does this mean? Where is God now? How can we have right relationship with God without the temple? Who are we? Because our identity is having God connected to us. Where, where do we go now that Jerusalem's destroyed? How could God let this happen? And what about all these messiahs? They all claimed to be the real ones, and yet, here we are. The whole world was turned upside down. It was as if the whole world had ended in a very real sense. And also during this time between Jesus and Luke, Caesar, Nero, had persecuted the Christians in 64. There was an eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which completely wiped the city of Pompeii uh, out of existence in the year 79. There were threats of war in multiple areas around. The world was upended and disturbed, and the people of Israel were unsettled. The Christians of Greece and Rome were unsettled and unsure. People were scared and wondering what to make of it all. What is happening? Their points of view we're full of fear. And so now we're going to hear from Luke 21, where we receive apocalyptic teaching from Jesus. The setting of the teaching is 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, but the authoring of the story is 10 to 20 years after the destruction. So understand there's significance to this story and the way we're going to hear it and how the original audience would have heard it. And so, let's hear it, but remembering that apocalyptic literature and all of its symbols and coded cosmic language, it's all about what? Hope. Luke 21, verses 25 through 36. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So did you hear the hope in the story? You heard the catastrophe, but did you hear the hope 
Did you hear the call to action? We're not facing what Israel did 2,000 years ago, but we are facing our own world-altering reality. We may be wondering in our own time and place, what do we do? What do we make of all that we see and hear? How do we try and make sense of millions of people in our country all crying out together that things are not just for them? Not just a couple people, millions. How do we process the chaos we see around us? And how do we bring that chaos and our own world and experience together? What I mean by that is we just had Thanksgiving, and if you were blessed enough to gather with friends and family, chances are good that there were people among you wondering how how they hold that day of joy and comfort and good food and loved ones and all the things they're blessed with, uh, even time to relax. And how are they to hold that reality among the idea that many people had to work on Thanksgiving? Many people didn't get to gather. Some people were awaiting the arrival of justice in court proceedings this week. Some people were in a tent under a bridge in Louisville, hungry, cold, and alone. Some people were not welcome home for Thanksgiving because who they are, their identity, does not fit with their family's expectations. Some never showed up to their family gathering because addiction was too hard to overcome that day. So how do we hold all that together? How do we relax and find joy amidst the chaos? In the midst of racism, and homophobia, xenophobia, fear, anger, division, Omicron, climate change, etc. What do we do as the church? What we hear from Jesus is, have hope. Everything we see and know today will one day end. Because God's reign is coming. And the renewal of heaven and earth will happen, and which means all things as we know it must end. When? How? Not even Jesus knows, according to the Gospels. And those who claim to know, those those who hear voices saying that they know, are probably vastly misunderstanding apocalyptic literature. Those who lift up messages other than hope have missed the point. We can look back at the complete destruction of Jerusalem and know That that wasn't the end of connection of God with people. That wasn't. Forgiveness, worship, and presence with God is available to everyone now. We know that through our faith story in Jesus Christ. And not to make light of the trauma and tragedy of Jerusalem's fall, because it was traumatic, it was tragic, devastating, terrible. But it was, in the large scheme of things, inevitable. Just like every system we know will end. If God's reign and systemic kingdom is to arrive here on earth, then everything else must end. Amen? We shouldn't be surprised. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But we can have hope. Talks about judgment at the end of our passage. In Jesus' day, understand judgment in Jesus' day. There were no courtrooms or city halls. This was not like judge, judgment today. Judges traveled around. If someone wronged you in your town, your home, you could not seek justice until the judge came. You would have to wait, and sometimes you'd have to wait a long time, but you could have hope that judgment would come. You could long for it. You could anticipate it with hope. And the offender, in the meantime, whoever wronged you, they're not looking upon the arrival of the judge as a thing to celebrate. They're dreading it. The judge will come. 
Jesus is saying, I will come back, and I'll bring justice to the earth through the reign of God. It's already begun in the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but the work is not complete. The end of the beginning and the beginning of the end has begun with the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, but the work is not complete. We can celebrate the goodness of our lives with confidence even while injustice persists. We must also speak out and stand up for justice, love, mercy, grace, and truth with confidence because we know one day judgment will come. And judgment, as Jesus says, is our redemption. The season is changing. Redemption is drawing near. And as painful as it is, it is still something for which we can have hope. We can stand amidst the chaos of our world with our heads held high because we know the falling away of this world is inevitable while God's reign establishes itself. In fact, we can celebrate the transition even amidst the pain. With the falling away, redemption draws all the more near. And our good news, friends, is we, the church, we have hope in Jesus Christ. And God sustains us with the hope of redemption. So what do we do amidst everything we see and hear and experience today? We don't panic. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Do not become distracted. Do not get caught up in the world's games. Do not even get caught up in the church's games when they're played. Don't close your eyes to the realities around you. See things as they are. Stand up. Open your eyes, lift your head, be alert, and above everything else, have hope, my friends. Christ is coming again, and that is what Advent is all about. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.